Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Welcome everyone to the Undisclosed Addendum. This week we've got our most comfortable sponsor coming back to help us, Mack Weldon. Listen in for the Mack Weldon spot later in the show and support Mack Weldon because Mack Weldon supports us. Until then, enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the Undisclosed Addendum. I am John Cryer, and you are listening to the podcast about all things undisclosed. In the most recent episode of Undisclosed, Standby Council, the team finally started digging into the trial of Joey Watkins by introducing us to the many, shall we say, colorful characters that constituted his legal team, as well as some of the missteps and machinations that may have doomed the effort to defend him. Now, with us today are two of the hosts of Undisclosed. We have Susan Simpson. She's an associate at the Volkov Law Group, and she blogs at The View from LL2. Hey there, Susan Simpson. Hey. It's great to talk to you on Skype again. I know. <laughs> it, was, it felt weird to talk to you in person <laughs> during our live addendum record. That was just weird and you know awkward. Totally unnatural. <laughs> yes, exactly. But the great thing was our next guest, Colin Miller, uh, was only there by Skype, so I could maintain the distance that I'm comfortable with with Colin. <laughs> he just remained a floating head, uh, you know, overlooking the many things we said in the live addendum. Colin Miller is an associate dean and professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law. He blogs at Evidence Prof blog. Welcome to the show once again, Colin Miller. Hey, John. But also with us today is Shannon Murphy. Uh, She grew up in Rome, Georgia and Galesville, Alabama. She has a PhD in social psychology from the University of Alabama. In addition to her university education, Shannon completed a six-year enlistment in the Air National Guard. During this time, she was activated for two years in support of Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. Shannon is currently employed as a research psychologist in the Army Research Institute. Welcome to the show, Shannon. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. First of all, uh, thank you for your service. And second of all, so you actually grew up in Rome. Do you actually know any of the folks that we've been talking about on the podcast? Yes. So Rome actually has, it's divided into several school districts, which are kind of scattered throughout the perimeter of Floyd County. I went to Coosa High School, so I was in the same class as Adam Elrod. Heath Wilson, who has also been discussed in the podcast, was, I think, two grades below me at CUSA, and Heath actually rode the same bus as I did when we were younger. And there are other people from CUSA I know who are kind of more peripheral. Um, DJ Gamble, Jeremy Schuler, Joey Rhodes. So pretty much anybody you've mentioned from CUSA, I know, and I was in the same kind of cohort. Either they were in my grade or one or two classes above or below me. The kids from Armerchi, I did not know Joey Watkins. I did know Tim Hughes, and there are some people who are related to the case that you guys haven't discussed yet that I also was friends with as well. But I was not aware of Joey Watkins. From what you guys have said and from the people I've talked to, his reputation preceded him, but it didn't make it over to me. Yeah, Rome is kind of like, it's like three or four small cities 
shoved together in a slightly bigger small city. So you've got like the Lindale kids and like the Murchie and Kusa, and they don't really seem to interact that much. No, and that was actually, that's something I don't know that from looking through the Reddit threads, I don't know if people quite have a grasp on that. So Rome isn't a small town, but it's not huge. But, you know, like I was saying, there's a Rome city school district, which houses all of the kids who are in the city of Rome proper. And it's actually a relatively large school. I think there's like 400 to 500 kids per class at Rome, or at least there were in the late 90s when I was there. Then there are the county schools who serve kids that are in these county school districts around the perimeter. And there's really not much overlap between those schools. And they're all kind of centered around a particular, um, I don't want to say industry, but a workplace. So the Kusa community where I was at, a lot of the families there worked at Platt Hammond or the Kraft Paper Mill. And then in Armurchi, I think the families there worked in a lot of the mills in Somerville, whereas the Lindale kids, there was a lot of textile mills out there. So although these communities like Armurchi, I could get to Armurchi from where I lived in probably a 10 to 15 minute drive, which isn't really that far. The communities are tight knit enough around these little school districts that there's really not much overlap unless you just happen to make a friend and then they introduce you to more people at that school, which is what I did. And that's also um, a lot of the action in this story, for lack of a better word, you may have noticed takes place at the Home Depot parking lot. And the reason for that would have been prior to social media, that was the only way we really had to meet people from different school districts. It was known that we would all go to this parking lot and hang out. And that is how we would actually meet other people that we might not otherwise in our little community of the school districts. So was that a ritual? Was there like a night that everybody went? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And it was kind of a a coming of age type thing almost because, you know, whenever you would turn 16, you would get your license and then that was what we would do. And so there was actually not to get into too much detail, but there was this route you could drive back and forth from like the Riverbend Mall, you would go down this little stretch and then go in front of the Home Depot and Kmart. And you would go down to this other end of the parking lot where Kroger was at. And you would turn around and drive just back and forth. <laughs> the little cruising loop. circuit. Yes, I was just about to say that. I mean, it's like American graffiti. This is an incredibly common part of American life, it seems. It sounds so, you know, kind of silly now being an adult. But like, you know, we would go out as like a group of girls. And if we would see a car full of guys that were cute or whatever, we would wave and honk. And then you would pull over to the Home Depot parking lot or whatever. And that's where the actual conversations would take place. And so that's why there's all of this kind of local gossip happening at these parking lots is because it was kind of a social space that was outside of adult supervision. And that was something that's noteworthy, too, is a lot of kids who had parents who were kind of more directly involved in their lives. Not that the kids who hung out at Home Depot and through the parking lot had uninvolved parents, but if you were a child who was very scheduled, say if you had a lot of sports, a lot of extracurricular activities, a lot of church activities, you just wouldn't have as much free time outside of your parents' supervision to talk to one another. Whereas, you know, we had the latitude to go to Home Depot and kind of be unsupervised teenagers and and talk outside of adult supervision. So now it seems like a lot of teenagers in Rome, well, certainly the ones that we've talked about on the show, 
seemed to have a lot of interactions with law enforcement. Um, was that typical of the teenage experience in Rome or was that unusual? It depends. Um, kind of if you think of it on a continuum of delinquency, I suppose. There was a group of kids, and I would place Heath Wilson on one end of the spectrum, who was a delinquent kid, but who also was committing adult-type crimes. And I don't want to say too much, because it would be speculation, but, I mean, those were kids who were involved with law enforcement in very serious matters. You discuss the time the cops went out there and he was shooting off guns into his backyard. Well, obviously, he shot, you know, at Joey Rhodes. No, so at uh, uh, David McDaniel. David McDaniel, I'm sorry. It's it's hard um, to keep track of who's shooting at who <laughs> yeah. occasionally in this case. Then, but the thing is, shootings shootings are rare. It's not, despite the fact some of these kids were carrying guns, and my kids, I'm not talking about Joey and his group, but actual shootings were not sort of a commonplace event. Which is actually fascinating to me because it's a culture that's very at home with guns. They, you know, I imagine there's still a fair amount of hunting. People are in areas where law enforcement isn't close by, often keep firearms for home protection. Is that an assumption on my part or is that accurate of the area? No, that's correct. And that's kind of why I said Heath would be at like one end of the spectrum to where even now, I mean, I live in Old Town Alexandria, which is a very affluent, you know, dense urban community. I still have a shotgun in my closet for home defense. Like, Whoa, it's okay. Probably, <laughs> okay, Shannon, yeah. um, that's so, good to know. So I know that uh, we mentioned in an earlier episode that there was a time when Joey, some guys came over to fight him, and he didn't want to fight them, so he shot a gun in the air. And it was a gun loaded with rock salt to deal with, like, wild animals, which I forgot to mention in the show. So, like, yeah, I mean, that sounds bad if you're, like, coming from a not... In the context of, like, how it was, it's not the aggressive act it was being portrayed as. No, it's not at all. And, like, during hunting season, anytime I was in a car or a truck with a male, there was a deer rifle in the car. I mean, everybody, I don't want to say everybody, but almost all families I knew who I would spend time at their house, there was a shotgun somewhere in their house sitting there for home protection. I mean, guns are just around. That doesn't necessarily mean everybody is out shooting each other. But, I mean, there are some kids who would do things like that. But again, they're at like one extreme end of the delinquency spectrum and not the norm. So whereas you have like the Heath Wilsons who are getting into what I call serious adult type trouble, then there's kind of the where I would have actually classified myself is just general juvenile stupidity. It's things that, you know, most kids, I mean, I grew out of it. It's just stupid stuff and then the culture kind of promotes it there's this whole idea of a culture of honor to where if you're insulted if somebody takes advantage of you if somebody wrongs you in some way you are expected to respond i mean turning the other cheek i mean it's the ideal but it's just not how things work and that's actually kind of what drew me to joey's story and what made me willing to talk to you guys is because i did the exact same thing to at least two girls who messed with boyfriends I had. So you could just lift Joey's story about the chasing in the cars and the, you know, come to my house and I'll, quote, beat your ass. Like, I, as a female who grew into somebody with a PhD, I did that exact same thing. And it was relatively normal amongst, you know, this kind of, because I wouldn't even call us delinquents because, again, it was so – it was common. It was just what we did. And it was also why a lot of times law enforcement would kind of turn a blind eye to it until it actually got to a 
truly problematic point, which is why Joey, at one instance, y'all were talking about how he had Isaac follow him to his own house. And then that was kind of framed by Tammy Colston as laying a trap for this unsuspecting lamb. Well, no, it was because, you know, if you're going to fight somebody, which there was always a chance or a threat of a fight happening, you do it on your own property because the cops are going to show up and say, all right, well, you were at your house and this person came looking for trouble and you got in the fight, blah, 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 you know, move on, you know, go about your business. So that's kind of a long-winded explanation. But then I don't mean to make it out like, you know, all of us teenagers running around in Rome were delinquents or close to it. I mean, there were plenty of very well-behaved kids, but those were the kids who, again, were very deeply involved in sports or, you know, school activities or their parents. Kind of this whole idea that's the popular trend in parenting now where they're hyper-parenting. They have their kids scheduled every minute of the day once they get out of school. Those type of kids, you know, weren't as common back then, but they just really wouldn't have had time to have been hanging out with us and engaging in this sort of back and forth. Yeah, I get torn sometimes between not wanting to say that, I guess, normalizing this behavior and saying like, oh, that's totally fine for kids to do this. Because no, it's not. That's not the ideal. But at the same time, I think it's unfair to, I I think people might hear what's happening and sort of judge Joey based on what their own experiences were like as a kid growing up. And they don't really compare. Like if Joey did his, that kind of stuff in some communities, some areas, it would make him a delinquent. I think in the context where he was growing up, though, it didn't make him a standout in any way among his peers. Although Joey was definitely known for being much more of a, like a loud mouth. <laughs> like, and this actually, I think two episodes ago, wherever y'all are talking about the notion that Joey was running a gang, uh, that's just absurd because that makes it sound as if it was an organized effort and that Joey was particularly badass and that, you know, people were falling in line behind him. No, I mean, it wasn't like that at all. It was just, and and there's this whole sense, and you get this, I've noticed this over and over again as y'all are talking to people who ended up testifying against Joey, you know, due to Stanley Sutton's influence. They're very regretful, it sounds like, and they feel like they weren't, this idea of loyalty comes up over and over again. And it's because if you were friends with somebody, you are expected to be there for them if, quote, shit hits the fan. So if I'm going to get in a fight, you know, my friend Jennifer or whomever, I need to know that she is going to be there to fight with me. It's not that we're a gang. It's just that that's how you show your friendship is being there for somebody and backing them up if and when it's needed. But to say there's an organized element to it, no, it's just, again, it's this culture of honor in the sense that, you know, you defend your own honor and you help your friends defend theirs. And that's what a friend does. Yeah, it's interesting coming from another perspective, because I grew up in the in the Northeast in an urban area. And a lot of that didn't come into play. I mean, to me, things that I pick up about the culture down there that always seem like, oh, well, that's different. Obviously, the fact that guns were an everyday part of their life, you know, where I grew up, there wasn't that. We also didn't have very many interactions with police. I can't recall anybody who ever actually got arrested. I mean, yeah, I was a theater kid, uh, so I didn't go around with the Really? I'm shocked. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. I know it's shocking. Um, but I think to listeners of the podcast, it is fascinating. Now, Shannon, do you have any idea where that culture of honor grew out of? Yeah. So there's actually the idea is and there's discussion about this kind of in the social sciences and then historians that the Appalachian Mountains were primarily settled by Scots-Irish people. And 
there's this idea of a going back to you know the 1500s, a herding based community versus an agricultural one, and the difference being that you know Scots Irish were herding based cultures. They herded sheep and I'm not sure what else, but it, there was a herding culture there. The idea is that you know your sheep or your whatever livestock can actually be stolen, and that's a huge problem. And so it behooved the Scots-Irish people to develop a reputation for fearlessness, for a willingness to retaliate against an insult or a threat to their livestock. And whenever they moved over to the United States, they immigrated, they settled into these mountains, the Appalachian Mountains. And they kind of, since the Appalachians are still, even to this day, the communities are fairly isolated unto themselves, they've retained a lot of that culture. And if you look, there's two social psychologists, Cohen and Nisbet, who have done work in this area. They have a seminal paper, and then they also have a book on the topic. And in the paper, you can actually see there are physiological level responses. So long story short, they ran a study where they had a confederate who's somebody who's in on the experiment, but the subjects don't know this, bump into subjects in a college campus hallway. And then the Confederate said something under his breath, you know, insulting, like, who the F, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, mm-hmm. so he bumped into him and then insult to injury, muttered something offensive. And so then they brought the people who were there for the study into the lab. And their cortisol levels, I think it was cortisol, it's a marker of stress and aggression. The Southerners actually had higher cortisol levels than people from outside the South. So they were actually physiologically more upset by this bump and slight insult than were other people. And you actually see it in other ways too. Um, For instance, the military that is disproportionately filled by kids from the Southeastern United States, gun ownership, the gun culture. And it's all kind of left over from this idea that, you know, in order to to be successful and to protect your home and family, you need to be ready to fight for it. And then in a rural area too, like you were alluding to earlier, the cops aren't nearby. So if something happens, you can call 911, but I mean, it may take them 15, 20, 30 minutes to get out there. That's not uncommon if you live out in the middle of nowhere. So again, you know, you need to have a reputation for somebody who's not going to accept insults or theft or any kind of, you know, breaking of the social code lightly. You could kind of hear Sutton referencing this in a much, you know, less well-read way when he talks about how he thinks this had to be Joey, essentially, because they only do personal crimes there in Rome. Yeah. And actually, but that, I keep mentioning Heath Wilson specifically, just as an example, because he's somebody that y'all have discussed on the podcast. But Again, I don't mean to say that, you know, random crimes or road rage type crimes don't happen. They do, but they're kind of on one end of the tail. They're not that normal. But two, actually, let me back that up by saying the idea of a road rage incident is still in line with this culture of honor thing. So if I'm driving down the road, I'm minding my own business and somebody cuts me off and then has the audacity to flip me off about it, well, I wasn't doing anything wrong. You cut me off, and then you're going to flip me off and cuss at me? Like, 
that's ground for escalation of violence right there. So the insult doesn't have to be like a personal insult by any means. I mean, it can be something as innocuous as cutting somebody off in traffic or taking the wrong tone. And it's often said that Southerners are exceedingly polite because we have to be that way or else we would all run around killing each other. Um, So I think Stanley, I get what he was saying, but I think that like it doesn't necessarily exclude the idea of a road rage type incident or something like that. Now, in an earlier addendum, we got kind of deep into the casual use of the N-word among uh, this group of teens because there was a wiretap where they were you know, throwing it around uh, with a plum, actually. But is that indicative of actual racism in this group or is it just how they speak to each other? That was I think that may be an artifact of that specific era. During the late 90s, the Southern rap scene was a, a big deal. Southern rappers were actually... They were what was trending. So there was this, in Atlanta, you had Outkast and Goody Mob, Ludacris. And then in New Orleans, you had, you know, the Cash Money group of artists, the the No Limit group of artists. So in the late 90s, there was this big embrace of this rap music that kind of spoke to being Southern. And there was a pride in, you know, there was these Southern rappers. And actually, I, I listened to way more rap music back then than I did before or after. And no, to answer the question, I mean, were some of those kids racist? Perhaps. But I think that the way they were talking was less to do about racism and more to do kind of as a a very misguided homage or emulation of what they were hearing in the rap music at the time. Yeah, they wouldn't have understood why it was racist and would have thought they were not being racist. Yeah, they were just, you know, it was cool. It was the way rappers spoke to each other. So they kind of, you know, appropriated that without understanding the implications of what those words actually meant. Well, also, to some degree, they felt like they were probably enjoying black culture and urban culture and felt like, you know, that's the opposite of racist to them, I would imagine. Yeah. Exactly. So, well, I was going to say, actually, um, I first started talking to Shannon because of something happened or relevant to this episode, which I thought was pretty interesting. So what was your first comment that you made about the show before you knew where it was going? I'm notorious for reading about things that I want to watch or listen to before I actually do it. Um, So I forget how this even came to my attention, but I found out about the podcast and I listened to maybe... 15 minutes of the first episode and stopped and immediately went to Reddit. Cause that's what I do to see what other people were saying about the podcast and to, you know, read media articles about it. And at some point I forget how the thread was going, but somebody mentioned that Joey was being represented by cook and Connolly, And that, you know, obviously I knew the outcome was that he had lost the case, but I was shocked that somebody represented by Bobby Lee Cook or Branch Connolly in Rome, Georgia, would lose that sort of case because Bobby Lee Cook does not lose cases. I mean, he's that good, as you guys discussed in the latest podcast, and he's a very powerful, very influential, very respected man, and he's good at what he does. And this would have been the perfect, I mean, this is a vintage Bobby Lee Cook case. I think you actually said, like, you're making come out the case and how it was kind of, I mean, bizarre. You're like, if Bobby Lee Cook had done this, there's no way Joey would have lost. Exactly. I mean, that's what I said. Like, Bobby Lee Cook does not 
this is just not a case he would lose. And so that actually was so just not in line with everything I've ever known about Bobby Lee Cook and the way that people in that area respond to Bobby Lee that I just could not fathom how this had went so wrong for Joey that he ended up convicted. And so then Susan came in and said, well, no, actually he was represented by Abernathy. And then there was, oh, kind of a a high C moment. But yeah, I mean, I can say this with confidence. I do feel that if Bobby Lee or even Branch had gotten this case, the outcome probably would have been different. And I think Joey's parents, if I had gotten that trouble, because like I said, I mean, I did that same sort of stupid stuff that Joey did. I was terrorizing these girls. You know, we would follow them around, chase them down, threaten to beat them up. Um, I mean, it got as bad. I'm going to make myself sound like a horrible person here. I know. I, I, I wanted yeah. to mention that, Shannon. You may want to <laughs> yeah. be a little circumspect about your comments here, but go ahead. But, um, but yeah, I mean, no, it, I, again, my reputation preceded me. This one girl actually quit school and told the principal that it was because my sister and I were terrorizing her. But the point being was that this case that Joey, that was made against Joey, if this girl had ever showed up dead, they could have made the exact same case that they made against Joey against me. And had that happened, the first person I would have called would have been Bobby Lee Cook. And I would have paid him any amount of money to have got him to represent me. And with utmost confidence that, you know, he would have gotten me off. So, yeah, that's actually what prompted me to speak to Susan directly, because, again, I just couldn't couldn't believe that Bobby Lee Cook would lose that case. I've had a few people, a few witnesses tell me, I'm talking about the case and, you know, we're doing like, well, he has to be guilty. Bobby Lee Cook defended him and he was convicted. Yeah. And actually, I kind of came to that same like that was my initial was like, well, Bobby Lee Cook doesn't lose cases. So if Bobby Lee Cook had defended him and Joey had somehow another been found guilty, well, then the evidence must have been overwhelming that Joey did it. Like, that's the conclusion I came to whenever I went to speak with Susan for the first time. And the stories about him that you told in the episode were just uh, so fascinating and impressive. But I had a question. Where do most of those stories come from? Because like the sheriff story where the sheriff actually took a pot shot at him and then threw a Coke bottle at him while he was testifying. First of all, I want to know the court that allows you to drink a Coke while you're testifying. Uh, (laughs) I mean, maybe that's a southern thing. I know I know it's very, very popular in the south. But but who actually told you that story? I will say these are also Bobby Lee Cook stories. Well, some of them come from the news and like reports of cases. But at the same time, I would say Bobby Lee Cook would, you know, not hesitate for a little bit of uh, self-promotion. For instance, I have a theory that the whole Matlock is Bobby Lee Cook story actually comes from Bobby Lee Cook. Got it. I I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. And actually, so he's known. And I would say even in not only Floyd County, but Chattooga County, which is the county directly north of Floyd, and then over into Alabama, into Cherokee County. He's known because, again, you've seen that from the stories, you know, you describe in the podcast, he's one of us. So he's the kind of person to where if, you know, faced with an injustice of some sort, a perceived injustice, he reacts, you know, immediately and with violence is a little bit too strong a word to use. But, I mean, he reacts. He doesn't take it. He doesn't take things lying down. And people admire that about him. And they admire the fact that the quote that y'all gave in this previous episode about if you can railroad a bad man, you can railroad a good man, and you need to approach cases like that. There always needs to be somebody looking out 
for people. People respond to that, that again, he's one of us and he will defend us. And he's not, even though he's got more money than God, as far as people around there are concerned, he's not an elitist. He's not a lawyer's lawyer. No, he's not. Not not at all. I mean, he's a man of the people. And so he's legendary. I mean, for those reasons of not being, you know, a stuck up in his office, not getting out and talking to people kind of lawyer. He's approachable. Yeah, I think in some ways he's similar to Christina Gutierrez from our first season case. I mean, obviously, by the time she represented Anon, she had declined. But a lot of this story is about her performance in the courtroom and the way she could relate to the jurors. It reminded me a lot of what we were seeing with the stories with Bobby Lee Cook. Yes, which is why, again, I just couldn't imagine him going into the courtroom to talk to a jury of his own people and not convincing them of Joey's innocence. And especially once I actually started listening to the podcast, knowing the facts of the case, I really feel like it would have been easy work for Bobby Lee. I truly do. And so it is completely unfortunate that whatever the chain of events was that you know prevented him or branch from representing him. It's sad that that went that way. Yeah, going back to an earlier episode, he would have called Stanley Sutton to the witness stand and he would have raked him over the coals in the witness stand and made a show of that for the jury. Definitely. And actually, that's one thing. I have spoken with some people back home and that was something that came up a couple of times was why wasn't Stanley called to testify? Um, that's very strange. And again, I think that, you know, Bobby Lee Cook could have very easily made the case that, you know, based on that quote of his, that just because Joey was a punk kid doesn't make him a murderer. I think that that could have been hammered home a lot more than it was. And if you read our motion to the Supreme Court of Georgia trying to, you know, appeal the denial of access to the trial tapes, that's one of the things we talk about is Stanley Sutton and his testimony at the preliminary hearing um, where he at one point pled the Fifth Amendment. From defense notes, you know, it seems as if what the defense was told was that he'd just been joking or just kidding when he said that. So it wasn't really him pleading the fifth. But on cross-examination, he could have been very much examined on that. And without the trial tapes, we can't tell if there's anything to back up this claim of he was just joking. Interesting. And why would you joke about that? (laughs) Actually, to be, I'm still really ambivalent. Well, the episode that y'all did on Stanley about his reputation amongst the town. I don't think even, I mean, y'all spent an entire episode on it and I still don't think that really got across how large Stanley loomed over the community and the weird things about him eating grasshoppers and calling the women he met hun and, you know, darling or whatever it was. And then the quote of his where he was, you know, reprimanded by his supervisor for being too informal or whatever. And he said, that's just the way I am. I'm going to joke and cut up with people. I mean, he really was like, I mean, the whole idea of the loose cannon cop, that was him to a T. You really never knew what was going to come out of his mouth. I actually, I think I told Susan this, I worked with him. My first job was at a grocery store in Rome and Stanley worked on the weekends there as a off duty security guard. And he's definitely as colorful. And then some, as y'all made him out to be, he's just a quite a character. So, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he got up there and, you know, joked around about pleading the fifth and everybody just kind of, ha, 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 that's Stanley. And, yeah. Yeah, no, I've heard that before. Just, like, some people found it really annoying. Some were more tolerant of it, but that's just who he was. And he wouldn't, you know, tone it down for anyone. And very high-strung, 
you just never knew what to expect out of him. And I guess people kind of became accustomed to not knowing what to expect out of him. And so whenever he would do something bizarre, like, you know, plead the fifth, they were just kind of laughed and shrugged it off because that's Stanley being Stanley. So did you ever have any actual interaction with him? Yeah. Yeah. We worked together probably the better part of say six months to a year. He gave me a ride to and from work a couple of times whenever the roads iced over because he had a four-wheel drive truck. I always found him, again, he was very weird, very intense, very high-strung, but I didn't mind him. He was always perfectly fine with me. And actually, even going through the podcast, some of the things he done that you guys have described, I can see how it would be easy to kind of cringe at it, especially the interview he went and did with Kelly and her parents. But... In the local culture, even that wasn't all that strange. I mean, people have no compunction about getting themselves involved in everybody else's business. So him going over to Kelly's house and giving her this really, on the surface, creepy, inappropriate father-daughter type talk about dating Joey, that really isn't that out of the ordinary around there. But the whole him calling Joey and his friends a gang, that actually may kind of be my tipping point with my opinion of Stanley. I can't justify that in any way. But, I mean, personally, back then, it was perfectly fine. Um, He was a friend of everybody. And I think that was something that made Stanley unique in the area among the local cops was, you know, if you're a family from the wrong side of the tracks with borderline delinquent kids or delinquent kids, you probably don't have a lot of positive contact with police officers or law enforcement in general. However, Stanley, I mean, he made himself available to everybody. I mean, you probably, you definitely didn't want to get on the bad side of him as a lot of the kids and, you know, the situation found out, but he wouldn't necessarily make a nuisance of himself. And I think, you know, in retrospect, now that I'm a little bit older, I think that he was probably smart enough to figure out that it would behoove him to become friends with people who were, you know, on the edge of illegal or criminal activity because those people could prove valuable if and when he ever needed informants or witnesses or whatever. And that sounds like an obvious thing for a law enforcement officer to do, but he was the only one I knew of who was actually doing that sort of thing in the community because everybody knew Stanley Sutton, like everybody knew Stanley. And as y'all mentioned in a previous podcast, you had a strong opinion on Stanley because he was the type of person who elicited strong opinions. It'd be very hard to be neutral about Stanley. I've got a few questions for the male listeners of Undisclosed. Are y'all comfortable with the underwear you're wearing right now? Does your brand bunch up on you? Does the waistband itch? Does it wick sweat the way you want it to? I'm guessing that the answer to each of those questions is no. That is unless you are rocking Mack Weldon like I am. I guarantee you Mack Weldon is better than anything you're wearing right now. That's because Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and a simple shopping experience. Go on their website, you're going to see the promise, the most comfortable socks, the most comfortable shirts, undershirts that you are ever going to wear. They've got a line of silver underwear and shirts that are antimicrobial, and that means that they help you eliminate odor. And guess what? All these clothes perform well too. 
In fact, what I'd encourage is the new Lace Crew shirt that Mack Weldon offers. I bought one just last week. I've worn it twice. It feels good. It breathes well. It's a very comfortable shirt. Very easy to wear. I love it. So listeners, right now, here's what I want you to do. Go to www.MacWeldon.com and at checkout, use the promo code UNDISCLOSED. You're going to get 20% off your order. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like what you buy, you can keep it and they're still going to refund you. No questions asked. Again, www.MacWeldon.com MacWeldon.com, make a purchase, and at checkout, use the promo code UNDISCLOSED. MacWeldon, it's better than anything you're wearing right now. I had a question about that culture of everybody getting in each other's business. Is that something specific to that community? Um, no, I don't think so. And I actually spent time in Valdosta, which is a town in South Georgia, about the same size as Rome. And I talked to people there, and they said the same thing. No, it's the same thing there. And I think... That's actually because you always hear these stories about how great it is to grow up in small towns with tight knit communities and how everybody is always there to look out for each other and how they'll give you the shirt off their back. All of those things are absolutely true and they're wonderful and they are fantastic features of these small towns. But the it comes at a cost. It, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, they're going to help you, but they're going to bring over their help with a little bit of opinion and advice on how you should go about not getting into the situation in the first place. And it's just the assumption is that you don't mind this advice, that you don't mind everybody knowing your business because we're all friends, we're all family. Personally, it can get tiresome, which is why I don't live in a small town now. But no, not at all abnormal. That's completely accepted, wanted, appreciated. It's viewed as a, a wonderful feature of small towns. I had a question about Branch Connolly and about his uh, leaving the case. So my understanding from the podcast was that he met with Joey Watkins' father and then decided, well, now's the time to go to France for a vacation. Uh, does Joey's father have any comment on that in particular? We don't know. So there's a lot, obviously, as we try to as probably tough in the episode that we don't know here because a lot of it wasn't documented. We're relying on stories we're getting from Joey's attorneys back then, Joey and his family. So, I mean, that's one story we've heard that Claire was talking about, I believe, is just that there was a vacation planned. So Branch Connolly went on this vacation and, you know, couldn't make the trial. But there's a lot we just don't know. And did Joey's father ever have any interaction with Bobby Lee Cook, the lawyer he thought he was hiring? Yeah. After Joey's conviction, Bobby Lee Cook did get involved for the appellate process. So he was involved there. And um, Johnny, Joey's father, did meet with Bobby Lee Cook at one point. But he just wasn't doing the trial because he had his, you know, his little associate doing it. I actually have a Rome question from social media. And this actually refers to something mentioned in an earlier episode, but this is from Kathy McGilton. She says, not the most pressing question, but what, pray tell, is this rock store that Joey mentioned? Oh, I have no idea. I wondered about that. <laughs> I kind of didn't want to ask. I assumed everyone else knew. Oh, great. So we have no idea. Like, is, I think like a like a. I have a theory. The only thing I can figure um, is I have no idea why he would have been doing it. There are stores because my granddaddy was a landscaper. And so there are stores where you can go and buy large rocks that are used for landscaping purposes. But again, I have no idea why Joey would be visiting anything like that. That's the best guess I have. Well, it wasn't Joey at it. It was um, Adam Cagle. Is it possible it's like a convenience store? Maybe. I don't know. 
anyway, it's a store and he was out there and they have lots of weird stores. That <laughs> I, could, I didn't know if it was going to be like an actual like rock and mineral store, but I think it was probably going to be like a convenience store. Okay. Yeah. I assumed it was probably some sort of like maybe something you bought where you buy stuff that uh, people use in construction or landscaping like, uh, like Shannon had said. That was my theory. Yeah. Wait, Shannon, what was the story you were telling me about that I thought was really hilarious? The one with the yes, the sun tanning. Oh, Ashley's uh, herbs and tanning. <laughs> yes, you can go and buy. It may just be Ashley's tanning now. I can't remember. Yeah, she sold herbal supplements. Again, this was in the late 90s when vitamins and you know this whole natural movement had just started. So you could buy herbs and vitamins and go get in the tanning bed all at the same time. <laughs> so you can take the vitamins to prevent the skin cancer you are acquiring from the tanning bed. Absolutely. It's a one-stop shop. I mean, that's what's great about it. <laughs> now, I actually had a question for Colin. So in terms of Rex Abernathy joining the case at such a late time, he claims now that he asked for a continuance, but that it was not granted. But it sounds like nobody's certain of this. Wouldn't there be a record of this? If he just orally... As for a continuance, in that case, it's possible that whenever that occurred, there wasn't any type of documentation. But yeah, I mean, if there were literally a filing with the court, I'm filing a motion for a continuance, there should be some type of record of that. And also, it seems like, or we've been told that Abernathy came in very late in the game, but he was kind of involved from the start. So I don't know how to reconcile that either. Now, this was appealed uh, on the basis of ineffective assistance of counsel. Am I right? No. Oh, no, it no, wasn't. Not initially. Oh, okay. So there were... Because his, his, they were the counsel that did the appeal. But then later, there was an ineffective assistance claim. Ah. With the cell tower pings. Okay, so right. this was done on the basis of something that we haven't heard about yet. Right. We're going to have a whole episode on the cell tower pings and how they relate to the trial, right? That eventually was a claim of ineffective assistance based upon failure to put on a cell tower expert. And what was the first appeal based on? It was some bogus stuff. It was like, it was like the Mullinax thing. Character evidence. Oh, yeah. It was Ivana again, which we'll get to later. But it wasn't really. Well, it was, it was the uh, preacher. Joy Boyd. That's right. Right. The preacher. Right. The Brady violation by not turning over the alleged confession by Joy Boyd. Which was legit and should have gotten more traction, but... Well, yeah, because it appears that the judge in this case made several rulings that made it nearly impossible for any attorney to defend their client. I mean, you know, if you've got three weeks notice to start a murder trial, uh, you know, and you ask for a continuance and they say no, can that be uh, grounds for appeal as abuse of discretion? Yeah, that's the two of the cases that I cited on the episode were both cases where there was a substitution of counsel two weeks before trial and the court in Georgia rejected both of those in large part because it was the defendant who was unhappy and decided I'm going to switch out my attorneys. So certainly that's something that can be raised. And there are a few cases in Georgia where really it was an attorney coming onto the case just a few days before trial and the court denied a continuance that they found that was grounds for a new trial. So, yeah, it is abuse of discretion. But here, whereas Susan says, it seems that at a minimum, Abernathy was working on the case in some capacity for a decent amount of time. That wasn't really going to be grounds for an appeal. Uh, now, I've got a question from social media from Abby Workman, who says, wait, did you just basically say that Wayne Williams may not have been guilty of the Atlanta child murders? The interesting thing on that is there were those questions raised about this alternate suspect in the KKK and then in 2010, there was evidence that was released that a hair found on one of the victims was essentially a match for Wayne Williams. And that was reported in the press as this is the huge evidence that shows actually he's definitely guilty. Now, since then, we've had a lot of questions about 
the validity of forensic hair testing, which I think calls that into question more. Overall, though, I have no idea. I mean, I researched this minimally for the podcast and did some backgrounds. I know there's some strong evidence of his guilt. There's lots of questions out there, but I don't know exactly how valid those questions are. It seems overall it's a pretty strong case, but maybe there's something there. Certainly, it appears that the state was not as forthcoming with the evidence as they could have been. Uh, And in this case, Bobby Lee Cook was actually uh, part of a group of attorneys who were trying to get people to look back into the case. Is that correct? Right. Alan Dershowitz, Bobby Lee Cook. This was after the conviction they came in, and that was when it was – This evidence about Sanders, the member of the KKK and sort of the evidence the state had against him and the dog evidence, et cetera, they tried to use that to get a new trial, but that was unsuccessful. Now, Colin, by the way, I'm sorry to bring this up, but you and I, we've talked about your use of references in the past, right? And, and you know, I'm generally a big fan, but I think think you crossed the line, Colin, (laughs) when you start making references to unaired pilots – (laughs) <laughs> that's not that's not OK, Colin. It has to be a reference that people can have some access to. Uh, and actually, uh, you think this is a recording of the addendum. This is actually an intervention. There you go. <laughs> you, you need help, Colin. You you can't make references to things people haven't seen See, no, or have no, no, no access to having seen. It's an allegory for the lack of access to the justice system. And the trial tapes. <laughs> <laughs> nice save, Susan Simpson. Actually, which leads to a social uh, media question from Michelle Erica, who asks, if anyone else is thinking, who is Rex? Why do I know this voice? It's David Tennant, and I really want to watch this show. Colin, how did you find it, and where do you get it? <laughs> it's, uh, I don't have access to the whole show. It's just a, the one clip of this show that was on YouTube. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> don't do this, Colin. Don't do this to people. Um, okay, so there's only a clip. There's just a vague clip floating around the internet. Yeah, that's it's David Tennant uh, approximating an American accent. He's as most people who might know him, Doctor Who, for a number of seasons. But yeah, he was trying to come here to America and do it a pilot, and it wasn't picked up. But they have this one clip on YouTube, and I, the, the script for the pilot's available online. So that's where I I totally got watch the, the show, clips, just but... mostly for David Tennant. <laughs> it sounds like a terrible good show. It sounded like a good show, <laughs> but he did Broadchurch instead. So I guess that everyone sort of came out ahead. Ugh. Well, until season two happened. <laughs> oh, wait, this is real controversy. I don't want to set you guys off against each other. I know you guys have been working very closely to this point, <laughs> and I don't want to ruin that. I mean, I, I will defer to Colin on anything TV and movie related, but season two of Broadchurch, uh-uh. <laughs> That's where she draws the line, Colin. I actually haven't seen season two, so. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you're better off not. <laughs> Uh, I got another social media question. This is from Near Here, who asks, are Cook and Connolly using influence to keep tapes from undisclosed? Why is police planting false witnesses not a crime like police planting false evidence? Uh, no, no, I, there's nothing. The court tapes, that's purely have to do with the court's decision. So that has nothing to do with the defense team. They didn't have the tapes. They never had them. As for the false witnesses, well, you have to prove they're false. And that's a pretty... Uh, I was going to say high bar, but let's call it impossible because if a prosecutor can call Mullinex when she is so embarrassed she's doing it, she has to say for what it's worth, there's not really a line there. Really, it's in the hands of juries at that point and and defense attorneys. And in terms of the police having these people say – Go to Mark Free's house. There's a doctrine. It's called either the false friend doctrine or the misplaced trust doctrine. It comes from a line of cases, including the prosecution of Jimmy Hoffa, where essentially they say there's no problem with the police having a I mean, this is sort of the confidential informant. We have someone who's wearing a wire and they are going and we 
have them come to your house and they pretend to be your friends and there's not a Fourth Amendment concern there because if you place your trust in that person, then you are the one assuming that risk and they can use that against you. I've got a question uh, from somebody about the uh, Adnan Syed case. This is from Sam Moody who says, Hello, has anyone gained access to the Jada Lambert autopsy? I believe we know that Hay was knocked unconscious before she was strangled. And I'm wondering if Jada Lambert had any contusions on her head in her autopsy or was it just manual strangulation? She did, actually. Um, and it does not mean, it's not what I'm saying, they're connected. That's not what it means. But there are a number of striking details between the two cases and how they were found and presented. Just the setup of the crime scene and the nature of the wounds and how they were found, other than the parks, which are different parks, are eerily close. We don't have the actual autopsy, but that's, yeah, you might remember that was, was it Roy Davis was the name of the man who had killed her? And yeah, there, the reports say that she did have these injuries to the head, but we don't actually have the autopsy report to see exactly the nature of those injuries. But it's very telling that the police didn't choose to pursue that with any uh, vigor. Well, uh, also, that case was not solved until 04, long after Nan was convicted, and that was not done until the DNA match came through. Uh, was the actual murder contemporary with the uh, Hayes murder? She was one year before. Shannon, did you have any questions that you wanted to ask Susan and Colin? Actually, yeah. And this may be something that's discussed in the next podcast. But I'm interested to know why Heath wasn't investigated more thoroughly as a potential suspect. I know that from the seventh or whichever episode, there was an issue of the 911 log and whether or not he would have physically had time to get from where the David Williams incident happened to where Isaac was shot. But it seems like that should have been looked into a little bit further than it was. We do not have a good answer to that. We will be getting more into the details. Well, we have. But as for the question of why, that one is still elusive because at least document a reason that you disregard a suspect, right? Yeah. And it just, if I were a juror, just the possibility raised by Heath would have been enough for me to, to have reasonable doubt. And it seems like Heath was kind of just, I don't even know if he was even brought up at trial. He was brought up at Joey's trial, and the prosecutor did a masterful job of using that actually to spin it against Joey, saying, look how desperate he is to point the finger at some random place. Don't be fooled by his like impossible allegations about this other guy. It's all a giant sideshow. He's just trying to distract you from his obvious guilt. Only she did it better. But it, it was effective the way she spun it out. The question is, if Bobby Lee Cooker on the case, would he have somehow gotten the picture of Heath Wilson's vehicle? And then after Wayne Benson testified, you could imagine sort of similar courtroom theatrics to some of the other ones we mentioned in his past, where he goes through all this and he says, they showed you these hundreds or however many cars and none of them look like the vehicle. And you could just see Bobby Lee Cook whipping out this and... Wayne Benson on the stand, much like when Claire and Susan showed him the image of this vehicle and the effect that could have had in the jury. If that had happened on the stand, that would have been like right out of Matlock, his reaction. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it would have been effective because, I mean, here's the social psychologist in me talking, but the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And if you have somebody who is literally, you know, over here in Kusa shooting at people from a car into a car, my money is on that same guy driving across town to do it again, or at least you know, it should have been considered or presented as, you know, something to raise reasonable doubt or something. I think as far as the way the trial itself went, that's the thing that has kept me befuddled the entire time. 
You can see why Bobby Lee Cook would admire Tammy Colston as an attorney. And in fact, you know, he was suggesting her for a judgeship because she makes some of the same sort of leaps of logic sound plausible that, you know, in normal day to day understanding would make no sense. She did some incredible jujitsu up there, and uh, I admire it if it wasn't in the service of uh, an innocent man going to jail. Yeah, she was good at what she was doing. But like you said, I mean, on the one hand, she does have a job to do. She was doing it very well, but... Yeah, it's a hard... Well, part of me is just not willing to... From everything I know about Tammy Colson, I am not willing to... I just can't buy that she could have actually believed some of the claims she was making. She seems too intelligent and too aware to have actually bought into, maybe she did. I can't say what she did or not believe, but it's hard for me to understand how she could have missed some of the issues here. Yeah, and it's kind of, and now that I know the story behind how Rex was, you know, kind of put on the spot with hardly any time to prepare, now I have a better Allegedly. understanding <laughs> yeah, of how Joey's defense was kind of not up to par. So, Thanks so much for coming on, Shannon. This was really helpful. And it, I mean, it's brave of you to come on. It, it, this is your like life and hometown and your involvement and doing well to talk about it from your perspective now and your knowledge now as a psychologist, I think it's invaluable. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, there's been a lot of ink spilled here recently, not to get overly political, but you know, and how Trump got elected and this rural white vote. And there's a book out now that's hillbilly elegy. <laughs> the Appalachian culture is misunderstood, but then they kind of do it to themselves by being so insular and so antagonistic to outsiders and so I, I do appreciate the opportunity to almost speak on their behalf and say, you know, yes, this, you know, everybody having a gun tucked behind the door and going out and, you know, riding around in parking lots and brawling. I understand that, you know, to upper middle class people who live in suburbs or in urban areas, it sounds bizarre and delinquent and just what the hell are y'all doing? But I mean, it's the way they live their life. And I'm not saying, you know, it's a good thing for everybody to have a gun tucked behind the door to be out fighting and getting in trouble and because it's not. But again, it's just, you know, kind of the way things are. So Well, also, it's still a rural community that is adapting to modernity. You know, I think in social systems and certainly rural social systems, both agriculture and herding based systems, the young people had jobs. They had jobs they had to do to be part of their family. But now, because modernity has sort of put them in the school mode, uh, it robs them of the daily things that they had to do, the purpose they had to have on a daily basis. And so now, you know, these other things have to come in and take their place. At least that's my understanding of it. I mean, it's a larger, now we're kind of getting into societal level problems. But, you know, you graduate high school and like I mentioned in the start of the podcast, the little school districts were all built around these little industries, these little mills. So, you know, CUSA, you graduated, you know, high school, you went and got a job at, you know, Georgia Power, Plant Hammond or Kraft Paper Mill. You graduated from Marmurchie, you went up to Somerville and got a job, you know, in one of the textile plants. But those jobs are no longer there. And so it creates kind of a little bit of I don't want to say existential angst, but there's, you know, you start getting to age 18, 19, and there's a sense of impending, what am I going to do? And it kind of, it's this whole idea of a, a youth adrift without a sense of purpose. And that makes it easy for them to get involved in things they shouldn't be doing. I mean, a lack of anything else to do. And again, I don't mean to excuse it or to try to justify it, but that's how it is. It's a problem. And hopefully a solution's out there to be found. 
So. Well, thank you once again, Shannon. No, thank you all. I, I really appreciate it. This has been great. And thank you, Colin and Susan. All Thanks, right. John. And that is it for this week's addendum. And next in my series of features on organizations helping people who've been victimized by the criminal justice system, this week I am going to highlight a group out of the Bay Area called Planting Justice. An outgrowth of the food justice movement, they've developed an innovative, sustainable, self-sufficient model for prisoner reentry in California that actually works. California's recidivism rate currently stands at a troubling 65%, but to date, Planting Justice has managed a remarkable rate of 0%. You heard that, 0%. One unique attribute of their re-entry program is that it starts inside the prison. Their partnership with the Insight Garden Program at San Quentin State Prison enables them to train prisoners in permaculture gardening work before they even make parole. By the time a Planting Justice parolee leaves prison, they already know they have a job waiting for them the next day with people that they already know and trust. When a parolee leaves prison and joins the staff, they enter a workplace where the co-workers understand what they're going through and are willing to go out of their way to support this person through their transition. All full-time staff receive comprehensive health, vision, and dental insurance, as well as generous sick days and paid time off. A job at Planting Justice isn't just a paycheck. It's an opportunity to be part of a growing movement to transform our food system so that everyone has access to healthy food and the ability to live a long, healthy life. Meaningful, community-serving work can help heal a formerly incarcerated person's relationship to the neighborhood in a powerful way. Five years after leaving prison for the last time, a man named Anthony Forrest was promoted to a hybrid role as case manager, educator, and spokesperson at Planting Justice. In January, Anthony gave a presentation at the American Corrections Association National Conference in Louisiana, presenting as an expert to the same people who had overseen his own confinement for over 25 years. You can find and donate to Planting Justice on the web at plantingjustice.org. Fans can discuss the show on Twitter at hashtag undisclosed or hashtag justice for Joey. If you want to tag questions for future addenda, you can use the hashtag UD addendum, or you can tweet them directly to me at, at Mr. John Cryer. Also, if you've got worthy organizations, we're actually having a few extra episodes this season, so please uh, send that information on to me. And as always, you can check out the undisclosed-podcast.com website for all the case documents and photos. You can follow Undisclosed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle at UndisclosedPod, and also our key partner, the Georgia Innocence Project at at GA Innocence. I'm going to thank Hannah McCarthy once again and Rebecca Lavoy of Partners in Crime Media for audio production. Uh, I finally got to meet Patrick Cortez, who composed our terrific Addenda theme. Doing an awesome job, Patrick, every week. And Methel Telhan is our project manager. Thank you, Methel. Enjoy your vacation. And everybody, have a great week. Until we meet again. <laughs>